You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the third episode of the one and only season of Crime Traveler, entitled, depending on who you ask, either Fashion Shoot or Jeff Slade and the Fashion Shoot. Or would it be Jeff Slade and a Fashion Shoot? I feel like it should actually be Jeff Slade and the Shoot of Fashion, if you're going to insist on taking the first title as the template for this. Well, a fashion shoot is a thing. This isn't one. Obviously, this is a fashion show, but there's a shooting at it. It's a, fashion. It's a nice little pun. I, 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 I appreciate the kind of, I kind of appreciate the title because I thought it was going to be about photographers doing fashion stuff, but it wasn't. And so, all right, all right. Clever title. We'll see how it goes from it's there. A, it, it's a slate of hand. It suggests there's actually, oh no, well, I suppose there is a, a shoot of sort Anyway, let me not preempt yeah. your your <laughs> synopsis, which explains how much shooting I'm happens sure. in the episode. Yes. Yes, I suppose it does. Um, episode synopsis. Genuine. Fashion design. Yeah. Well, there was a real shooting. So, um, although that's not in my synopsis. <laughs> I just realized. <laughs> Fashion designer Sonia Duvall is being interviewed about her upcoming show and about negative feelings about her in the fashion industry about this time the world's absolute worst assassin takes a series of wildly accurate pot shots at her that never seem to hit the target despite sonia's cool under fire sloth like reactions the next day at cop headquarters chief inspector grisham is taking this seriously diana princess of wales has some of sonia duvall's fashions plus Somebody was shooting a gun. It's all hands on deck to protect Sonia's life at her upcoming fashion show. The all hands on deck call includes Holly Turner, chief science officer, who also happens to be a girl and therefore can go undercover as a seamstress. Turner isn't happy about this. Slade has the plum assignment. He's personally guarding the beautiful Sonia. During preparations for the show, it becomes obvious why someone wants to kill Sonia. She's not a nice person to anyone, including her sister, Linda, who also works for Sonia as a seamstress. It's not strictly true that she is awful to everyone. She's taken quite a shine to Slade, and Turner doesn't like it one bit. When Slade leaves with Sonia after another death threat, Turner sees even more. But she also discovers that Linda Duvall seems to have plans to get out of her sister's shadow. Could she be planning a murder? The next day, and it seems Slade may have succumbed to Miss Duvall's attentions and spent the night out. Slade, ever the brilliant detective, has picked up on Turner's particularly chilly mood towards him. But before he can find out more, a new lead comes in. Clifford James, Sonia's partner, recently took out a three million pound corporate insurance policy on Sonia, perhaps without her knowledge, naming himself as the sole beneficiary. It's almost time for the show, and a stupid argument causes Linda to quit. 
James takes her aside to the office to try to calm her down. Meanwhile, Slade is attacked in the car park, rendered unconscious, and placed in the boot of a burning car, which he manages to just escape from because it's somehow unlocked. Now he must get back to the show before it is too late. It is too late. As the show ends, the sound of gunshots ring out, and Sonia falls to the floor. Morris and the other cops espy someone with a rifle in the chapel and give chase, but ultimately lose him on foot. As Turner, who has some medical training, attempts to examine Sonia, a convenient doctor appears from the crowd, pushing her out of the way. Taking Sonia into the office to examine her, he soon pronounces her dead. Linda is missing, and her clothes are all gone. Plus, Turner finds her fingerprint on the rifle. It's an open and shut case, and one that doesn't even require the use of a time machine to solve. However, we wouldn't have a show if they didn't use the time machine, and so they do, traveling back in time 20 hours. First, they investigate the venue and the chapel where the alleged shooter was seen. Luckily, the security guard on duty is incompetent and doesn't spot them. There's not much they can do until tomorrow, so they've got to find a place to sleep. Turner's flat is not an option, since she's there right now sleeping. They don't have money for a hotel, but luckily Slade didn't spend the night at home last night, so his place is available. Turner's really digging his flat, which is well beyond his means and his cooking skills, and she's really getting into a nice evening with Slade, until she comes to the realization that Slade isn't home tonight because he's sleeping elsewhere with Sonia. And so the green-eyed monster rears its ugly head again, and they end the evening in a snit. In the morning, the snit continues, and Turner won't hear a word of explanation from Slade. They get on with the job. First, they surreptitiously check out Linda's flat and discover she hasn't packed up her clothes yet, despite having already left for the fateful show. Sonia catches them, but they talk their way out of it. Slade also tries to warn her not to go out on the catwalk during the show. It's advice she obviously ignored. Turner watches to see who attacks Slade, and Slade watches to see who shot Sonia. The convenient doctor in the crowd was Slade's attempted murderer. Turner follows them, and when she realizes Slade cannot escape the burning car without help, she unlocks the car, which allows him to escape. At the show, concealed in the chapel, Slade witnesses a man enter and leave the rifle on the floor, and then leave. He picks up and examines the rifle as the sound of gunshots ring out, and Sonia falls to the floor. Morris and the other cops spy Slade with a rifle in the chapel and give chase, but ultimately lose him on foot, without ever properly seeing his face. Soon thereafter, Turner witnesses the convenient doctor pick up someone from the office and drive off. Could that have been Linda? She snaps photos. When she shows them to Slade, he knows what happened. Returning to the present with no drama whatsoever this week, Slade arranges a stakeout. And when the suspects start to move, they arrest Clifford James, the convenient doctor, whose name is Hopkins, and Sonia Duval. They stage the entire thing as insurance fraud, with poor murdered Linda standing in for her sister's corpse. Back at Slade's swingin' bachelor pad, he finally explains to Turner that he did not spend the night with Sonia. He spent the night at the venue, and he was the incompetent security guard that didn't spot them that night. Also, he's laid on wine and clean glasses, all for Turner's benefit. The end. I'm just gonna lead, before I ask you what you thought of this episode, I'm gonna lead with, I cannot believe Grisham basically took Turner and said, oh, 
you can be a seamstress behind scenes undercover. Go on. You're a girl. I, I was a gog. <laughs> Even for a show from the nineties, I was a gog at that. Um, and worse that it came from Grissom. I could see mm. Slade saying it, but wow. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, well, I don't know about that specific thing coming from Grisham. I think, I think if, if you're going to, if you're going to portray sexism and they do sort of call it out, then it's worth acknowledging that it's not, you know, just, just because you, you can't, you can't assume the, that sexism is only going to come from men. Um, and particularly Grisham, and this is the 90s, Grisham is a DCI who has risen to that position in a very male-dominated force. And so... Presumably for her sewing skills. Well, obviously, <laughs> Grisham, Grisham can't sew. The point is, Holly says, yeah, she can't sew either. Um, so, you know, she she objects on those grounds. And... I guess I would probably share your outrage at that if Holly was a detective constable, but I'm too busy being outraged by the fact that she is not a detective at all, and she's being told to go undercover. Well, but and she says I'm not a detective, and she says, "Yeah, but you're." She doesn't say, "Yeah, but you're a girl. You can sew." I mean, it, it's it. It really was kind of both of them in but, one fell swoop it's like i don't care that you're a science officer. science officer is too boyish do the girly stuff i mean it's really awful both of it i i i it, it, oh it was... i i don't understand what holly is doing at the briefing but there also there also seems to be a, a, an emerging mo for this show in the sense of because i think we've we've picked up on this before and they've done this before they've actually highlight it there's 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 something that is obviously wrong like why would holly be going undercover in this so rather mm -hmm. than just waving it aside they call it out themselves but the thing is they just don't then address it as you say there's the line about the sewing which is i suppose the dead cat it's outrageous enough in itself perhaps as a distraction but it certainly doesn't address the central point and I don't know I don't know how much it matters but it does bug me because I feel like the question of whether it matters is right this is this is a I my argument is it, I think it does matter this is a fantasy world right it's got a time mm. machine in it so you would be perfectly justified in saying Simon what are you talking about this show is unrealistic because a science officer is going undercover this show is unrealistic because she's got a flipping time machine in her flat and people don't have time machines. I, I think this is the very argument you've used on me when I complain about something that doesn't make sense in Doctor Who. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's pretty much the argument. It's like, it's a show with a time machine in it. <laughs> well, I think it, I think it depends on what, what the kind of parameters of your fantasy are because it feels to me like the conceit of this show is that it has this sci-fi element within a cop show and so in a way you're you're expecting it to be a relatively realistic cop show and to try and sort of hang on 
at least to some sort of credibility around the way that that side of things is portrayed because that that is that's it's not very interesting fantasy is it i mean the science officer goes undercover it it's not in itself driving a story it's not even an issue in this because no one bats an eyelid there's no drama coming from it whereas the time machine the point about that piece of fantasy is it is driving the whole drama maybe a little bit less in this episode and we'll come back to that but still it's it's essentially what this story is about right mm. mm-hmm. I, yeah i you know th- this is a, a thing and and of course you can't do a google search for it now because the big lie has been adopted by trump and his enablers um the term the big lie or or the people who have labeled what trump has done as the big lie with regards to election fraud uh, but it used to be you'd hear the term the big lie used with regards to fiction uh, writing, as in you you tell a story and if it's got a fantasy element, that is the big lie that you have to get the the audience to swallow. And you can only give them so many of those right. in a story before they will no longer swallow them. And so you do kind of have to you do kind of have to balance the the credible reality with this this wild element and if you just throw everything out the window and go well it's a fantasy show and so it's got a time machine in it so everything could be wrong at some point the audience rebels and and certainly me at some point i begin to go well you know this is a little this is a little further than i'm willing to let it stretch so it isn't isn't what's interesting about exploring these ideas the the kind of the the friction that they have with reality isn't that in a sense what defines yes them? and if you just say this is a complete a complete fantastical world and the moon is green and whatever else or an egg um i mean there's nothing wrong with a story about the moon being green if that's what the story is about but at a certain point it just it starts becoming a distraction and you you've got to you've got to focus what your story is about and i think there's there are plenty enough interesting things about the kind of the fatalism and the determinism that is that's being explored within this conceit of a murder investigation tied to a time machine that you know potentially you could change what happened Mm mm-hmm and I don't see how I don't see I don't see how a science officer doing a detective's job really I don't see I don't see how it ties into that theme. No. And in a way, I think that the acid test is you say, well, if they just made Holly a DC in the first place, who happened to have a time machine in her flat? Yeah. Then that would have just that would have worked just as well, as long as people were willing to accept that a, someone with her kind of scientific background and knowledge would go into the police force, which she could be a detective science constable. It could have just made a new, you're a sciencey cop that does detective work. I don't know, but yeah, I, I, I guess you've just got, you know, you've got to give someone with it. You've got to give someone with a real genuine interest in science. Also a reason why, you know, a burning desire for justice that has led them to 
join the police. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I can see that. I can. You mean like uh, they could be Batman? That they could they could have lost somebody. And... I'm pretty sure the point about Batman is that he doesn't join any sort of police force. He's a vigilante. But... No, 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 no. But he's but he went on his the the crime that created him, if you will, is what set him on a course for wanting to pursue quote unquote justice. Right. So there could be something in in Holly's background that made her want to be a cop. And except we've already we've already got what happened to her parents making her want to make the time machine work. So right. right. But there could have it could do both. I mean she followed in her father's footsteps and then he got murdered and she decided to be I, I, there are ways to do it. I'm just that would make a more plausible fit for her being in the police force than what we currently have. It's like, it was the only job I could get with my physics degree. (laughs) You know, that that's, uh, that's the part that's, that's, that's particularly hard to swallow. But anyway, like, I wouldn't say I can't get past it. I mean, I've, I made a note of it. I've had a rant about it, but to be honest, I didn't spend the whole episode dwelling on the matter. <laughs> I, I I much prefer the show with Holly in it than not. Obviously, it's it's a much better show with her. Oh in yes. It. So, so I I can get I'll find a way around it. I just say, but but you know the the further besides you your point about the moon being green. I mean, the further you take it away from the reality of the viewer or the reader or the the audience, the, the less context they have to understand as you say, the friction between the fantasy elements and the real world. And so, yeah. So, yeah, the further away that you you kind of go from reality, also the more the storyteller has to do to actually explain how the rules of this universe actually work. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more kind of explanation involved. Whereas if you assume the reality is more or less the same as ours, or, you know, more realistically, the reality is more or less the same or as mm. the TV cop genre, just using that as a kind of shorthand, that's something the audience understand. And it's something you then don't need to explain. So the explanation is not going to get in the way of the, the narrative. And although, as I say, I don't think this necessarily did get hugely in the way of it. They do spend a couple of lines sort of saying what, what the hell is she doing here? Yeah. Yeah. So you alluded to this, uh, and I'll, or I think you alluded to this, but I'll, I'll call it forward. This episode really spent an awful lot of time in quote unquote, the present, didn't it? Uh, Unlike, unlike previous episodes where they're just like, Hey, we've had a murder. Yes. Boom. Now, now you want to go investigate. And this one, they know the crime's coming or they they're trying to prevent the crime. And when they fail and only after they fail, do they go back in time? I liked it better. However, it would grow old very quickly because what it means is that the cops have to be incompetent, that they cannot prevent the crime knowing that something's coming, like protecting somebody from an assassination attempt. Uh, and then, and then going back to, to find out how we failed. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to come back to the cops being incompetent because I've got, I've got a point about that, but I, I think there is, there is something in this that I, it, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy the, the kind of structure of the episode, but that the 
I, I guess we've had a couple of episodes established in the time machine, so maybe it doesn't matter so much. But the going back in time felt a little bit less purposeful in this. And I was trying to work out why that was. And it was partly, I mean, obviously, at this point, they're, they're now trying to find excuses why Holly is going to, again, break her word that they must not use the time machine. But it's also partly because it felt like they're, they're trying to figure out what happened here, arguing about what happened here, and that there was still more that they could do in the present to resolve it. And then they jump back in time, and there's the business about saying, oh, we've gone back uh, a bit longer in time. And then, you know, pretty much what they do, first of all, is they go and visit the scene of the crime. They kind of walk over around the scene and discuss how things happened trying to figure out what went on which didn't seem to take any particular advantage of there being before the crime happening it was Mm -hmm. almost like the kind of thing they could have done just walking around the scene afterwards trying to work out what happened although the you know the the there were kind of in-story reasons for that that they had maybe had some time to kill because they'd gone back so far and they really only wanted to go back to sort of spy on the killing but the but the kind of effect in narrative terms was that you got this i guess sort of the going the going back in time didn't really have any immediate impact on the story uh it uh it, it did cause uh sonia to have somebody try to kill slade by going back in time so i mean it it, it did have some impact in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, did mm-hmm. Did you notice? Uh, well, there, there are in, there are impacts. Uh, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, uh, I'll come back before to we get too on. far off of it. Did you notice in a scene? I think just before they found out about the insurance, when when Slade was trying to figure out what was wrong with Holly, um, that he not only did he list off, or he or she list off the two times that we've seen they went back in time he listed off a couple more and yeah he didn't i thought that but it's not he's listing what happened in the two episodes really? and four things happened in the two episodes i mean it was something about a blackmailer which one was that second episode oh i i guess yeah all right yeah it was all right maybe it just it i don't know it felt like he was recounting too much and i was uh, going is this because this is out of order or all right. All right. I'll take your word for it. I didn't, I didn't go back and check that. I went back and checked a few other little things that niggled me about this, but I didn't go back and check that one. And I probably should. Okay. What was your, what was the point you wanted to. Well, I was, I was just going to go off on the, the, on the time travel aspect because there were things that the, the time travel um, did, did have an effect. I think, Probably the kind of big one in this was the releasing of the central locking. Oh yeah, yeah. That that one because because obviously we saw the car fire twice. We saw it the first time round, and the boot is mysteriously unlocked, and Slade gets out, and then the second time round, and it's Holly unlocking it, and obviously it was Holly all the way along, and yet. In this instance, I mean, we've seen things like that, but in this instance in particular, Holly already knows that. She already knows he's got out of the car, right? Mm -hmm. So she's kind of going into that 
paradox situation knowingly and so i was kind of wondering whether it was the the kind of the like the bake your noodle moment in you know in the matrix where the the oracle says don't worry about the vase to to neo mm. Mm. and he says what vase and as he looks around for a vase he knocks it off with his elbow and it smashes and so the 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 you know the oracle says what's going to really bake your noodle later on is would you still have broken the vase if i hadn't said anything the kind of the because he looked around the accidental bootstrappy paradoxy thing or is it or is it much more deliberate um in the in the sort of i mean various instances in doctor who spring to mind but particularly in the lodger because in that there is explicitly during the story there are things that the doctor does after this end of the story that play a role in the story itself and at the end of the story he then says well i better go back and do those things or they won't have happened and yeah and so is that is that the 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 situation because holly is holly has the foreknowledge of this this time so she's she sees that slade escapes and therefore suspects that she has to play a part in that and so she decides well i might as well just get on with it i how about a little of both okay so she um she sees the guy uh hopkins knock slade over the head she knows that he takes him off and tries to kill him and that slade escapes she didn't have to follow him so I don't think she was following him to rescue him. I think she was following him because that's what she did. And so in other words, that is not the foreknowledge paradox. When she's there, of course, she sees him lock the door and she remembers Slade saying it was unlocked because I assume she is thinking when he's driving off that Slade is going to escape. I don't need to do anything further. Slade will escape. That's what happened. I don't need to be part of it. But then when she sees that it's been locked, then she intentionally, with that foreknowledge, goes and unlocks unlocks the door. Because otherwise she could have just gone into the chapel and helped that. Well, she didn't want to be there because she was there. But yeah, she couldn't go into the chapel. But she could have done something else. But she decides to follow that guy. Um, yeah. It, it's... Mm. <laughs> Because I, I mean, obvi- obviously, the, the the question you you're kind of asking when you're watching that scene is, well, she's if she has this foreknowledge about what happens, and yet it it depends on her playing a particular role within this scene, and we keep coming back to this thing of, can you change time? The temptation would be to say, all right, time, do your worst. I'm just going to sit here and not unlock the car. Yeah, but obviously, and and. You know, if she's right, if she's totally correct, then something will happen that that car is unlocked, whether it involves her or not. Acorn falling off a tree, hitting the button. But if she's if unlocking, if she, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, so she, her 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 hypothesis is that Slade has to escape because you can't change time. But you know, to actually prove it. She's having to risk Slate's life. So would you do that? And I think you'd probably not be human if you did. Right. Especially considering that she's obviously got the hots for him. Yeah. Um, 
in an embarrassingly awful way in this episode. A couple of things that I want to point out that are just like little little minor things, but they, they floated up on my notes here while I'm looking through them. Slade recognizes Hopkins from the photo. I'm still I'm still all concerned about that whole thing with the photo going blank. It's like, but what about the photo itself? It's missing. I mean, the, the actual piece of Polaroid film is not wherever it was. I, that's still bugging me. But and then I started thinking, does that does that mean? But where where was it? Left in the camera, still in the camera. No, but did the did the didn't the camera did the all right? We'll I don't know. know. Did the camera travel? Through the <laughs> I don't know where that camera came from. I don't know because I've got another question about that. I do. I it is amongst my. I've got another time travel question, which is related to where that camera came from. But just sticking to the actual photograph itself, my note about that is is. While when she took the photograph, what I immediately wrote down in my notes was, will the same thing happen to that photo as happened to the betting slip? Mm-hmm. And the difference with the betting, and, and obviously, yes, it did. The photograph was shown being blanked. And the implication is that time is somehow dealing with that. You you know, you can't transfer this information or, you know, whatever it is. But there is a difference because in the first story, there was the possibility that the betting slip was always blank because Slade just hadn't checked it. Mm. And so the the kind of option was there that the way time just sort of righted itself was that by a freak chance, the betting slip was always blank. And it's it's more, if you like, fate playing the role. The betting slip was always blank. It was always going to be blank. It had to always have been blank because of what Slade was going to do with the betting slip in the end. Whereas this says, no, the betting slip wasn't blank or needn't have been blank because it could have been the same as the image on that photograph. It was there until they came back to the present time dimension or I, I don't know yeah. what we're supposed to call it, but the real, the main dimension, I guess, at which point ta- time itself took a much more proactive role and just wiped the wiped the image clean. But did not return the piece of paper to where it should never have been returned. And, and you know, the question of fingerprints comes up to my mind now, too. It's like, would, would they leave behind fingerprints that, that wouldn't get wiped out one time? Oh. If they're in an alternate time dimension, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, obviously, they, 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 def, they definitely do, they definitely do interact with things in the real world, and they, they, they change the past, and that, and that is unquestionably true. The only thing that we've seen happen is when they bring things back into the time machine, right, and then transfer to the present, and that includes Thems- the themselves. betting slip, it includes the photograph, and it includes the dent on Slade's head when he got whacked yeah. in episode one they all get reset mm-hmm. or ret- re- returned to the state they were originally in before they travel back in time i guess would be a way of putting but it. not their memories so uh, they, they get to keep that but not their <laughs> um, because yeah, because I don't yeah. know. we wouldn't have much do, story do, if they didn't do, know do, they went do, back do. in time <laughs> so, yeah we went back in time but i don't remember just yeah 
I did, I did have another question that was related to the time tra- time travel thing that may be connected with where the hell did that Polaroid camera? Oh, from? yeah. And the question is this. Whose car are they driving? I don't know. I really don't know. That's that bugging me. It's like, was the Polaroid in the car? And is that Holly's car? Is that Slade's car? It, or did they bring the car? And how do they know they can drive the car? Because because they how do they know their other selves aren't needing the car? I mean, well, obviously they could remember whether or not they had the but there's no kind of discussion about that. There's no kind of, oh, I've got to get the car back because I'm about to take the car kind of thing mm-hmm. there's absolutely no sense of a schism risk occurring around the car and yet there is no obvious way that they could just have acquired another car that wasn't either one of them they could have rented it if they had taken some money with them but <laughs> or had credit cards which i think we've established they 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 didn't we so. did yes we established that they did not take money uh, which wow okay and what would happen if they tried to use their so credit they, card they couldn't the get money why they, they're, they're police they don't have credit cards well they, have, they, they can't they can't get the credit I, yeah i mean i don't see why they couldn't i don't see why they couldn't have gone home for some cash except for the risk that they'd been at, at home themselves but that is the same reason why they couldn't nip home for their car i wonder if the time machine is smart enough but when they go back in time, because we they make a comment this time that we went back 20 hours and that's an unusually long time. But and but she did mention it was random. I wonder if the time machine has some sort of not built in, but because of the laws of time kind of thing, that it will never return them to a point in time when Holly's already home. Well, I, yes, I've already. Yeah, I've already worried about that because they because they because I know they return to the time machine at a point in time when they're in the time machine. So. That's the point where that in itself seems a bit of a disaster. Yeah, they've come to the house when they were in the to do the time machine, but you know, if it went back twelve hours and Holly is is working at her desk, that would be a catastrophe. So it must it must jump that somehow and go. Well, we can't do that now. Let's do it. Or or the or the the time inside the flat exists in a different dimension from the time outside the flat, um, possibly. But I mean, from the point of view of the Polaroid camera, if they, I mean, if the risk is that someone will spot the Polaroid camera missing, if they had a Polaroid camera with them in the time machine, that Polaroid camera would now be in two places at once and they would have no issues. And there's no reason why something, uh, you know, an object couldn't travel back with them because we've seen that, for example, with Slade's gun. So the solution to the car would be simple if, they could get the car into the time machine or if Holly's flat had an underground garage that the time machine encompassed. Just a little more power. But I'm not sure it does. Yeah, they just need a little more power. Another stadium's worth to get the garage uh, as well. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the car bothered me. And of course, I think that it's... Okay, my thought is it's Holly's car. I don't know. But my thought is it's Holly's car. And he, and here's how I worked my thought process through. Holly knew the camera was there. Holly keeps the camera in her car. That's how Holly knew. Holly didn't need her car to go to the job that day. Slade didn't need his car to go to the job that day because he was chauffeuring uh, Sonia around. Uh, so they just knew they weren't using the car that whichever's car was. Now, if Holly took the camera back with her, then... I'm just going to say, bad Holly, you didn't take cash as well. 
right? I mean, it shows a foresight that we yeah. might need a camera, but it doesn't say the foresight sight that we might. I don't need think a she cat. did take it with her. I don't think so either. I think it was in the car, and therefore I think it's Holly's car because she would know there was a camera in Slade's car, and Slade would have gone, "Oh, my camera." And also, I thought that was a yeah. very no, primitive I'm... digital camera when I saw it. I thought, boy, that's going to take crummy pictures in 1997. <laughs> Why did you think it was a digital camera? Because it was so, when just the first shot when she picked it up, I'm like, wow, is that one of those really, really first generation, ginormous five megabyte, <laughs> five megapixel uh, digital cameras? Uh, then when she took the picture and go, oh, it's a Polaroid. <laughs> I'd forgotten those existed. They're quite distinctive shapes, those Polaroids. Um, that sort of prism shape they have. It, I just, I just didn't see it, and I've had a few Polaroids over the years, but I just didn't, uh, I didn't spot it. I thought, wow, is that a? Well, Hollywood have a first generation digital camera. She's an electronics addict. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's got a problem that uh, even the well, bank knows about. Couldn't afford one, <laughs> yeah. Except that it's the only stuff she can afford to buy is the stuff that she's buying for the time machine, I yeah. guess. So, but I, I totally, I totally agree with your logic. I think it is, I think it is Holly's car for all of those reasons. I just wasn't quite clear how she could be certain that she didn't have the car or would not miss the car in real time because. I'm pretty sure she says she is at home in her flat because that's why they can't go home to her flat. Did they drive the car at night to the to the to the venue? I I I don't I don't, I don't think we I don't saw know. it. I mean, it could all be fine. It's, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we found a kind of gaping plot hole. It was just one of those things that puzzled me. <laughs> why Why is this not Why is this not something that's being alluded to? Yeah. You know, my car was stolen yesterday and found on a street corner or something. I didn't even think about it. Like, yeah, okay. I could see that one. Or even just a just a moment's thought of, ah, oh, I didn't use my car at all yesterday, so we can use my car. Okay. So here's one I did go back and check. They are sitting in the insurance, uh, Slade and um, Nikki. Nikki's supposed to be posh, right? Am I, am I reading that right? Because mm-hmm. he's the one that reads The Guardian and he has the accent. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a graduate trainee. Isn't yeah. He? They're sitting in the office. I'm not sure if that's been established yet. With the uh, uh, the insurance guy, and he's telling him, "Oh, I saw this thing in the paper, and there, you know, that would be a motive for murder." And Slade's looking at the insurance guy, and Nikki's looking at the insurance guy, and Hopkins comes in behind Slade, and the insurance guy's, "Oh, Hopkins!" Uh, and then Hopkins comes in, sets the thing down in the room, and then leaves, and. At no point does Slade look at him. Not once. <laughs> Slade's looking at the desk. Slade's looking at the insurance guy. He never sees Hopkins at all. Now, maybe he saw him when they came in or when they left or something. But in that scene, the director should have had him. When the guy opens the door, he should have turned around and looked at him. That's just... But he's just so supremely disinterested. He does not look. And he's a cop. He's supposed to be observant. And he spots the guy and he immediately identifies him as Hopkins. And you're like, it would have been nice if we'd seen him see Hopkins. But okay. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, I thought he, I 
I was like, how did he know he was? And I went back to watch the thing and no, not there. Um, The other thing that I caught and I sent you a picture of it just to see what you think. But even when I was watching on video, I thought that stunt man running from that fire has a big old bushy black mustache under his uh, under his nose. (laughs) Not at all like Slade. That's that's a surprising Soot, soot from the fire. Yeah, it could be. Okay, it's soot from the fire. All right. <laughs> so now, like cork, cork mustache style. So eye contact with yourself will trigger a catastrophic universal disaster. Eye contact. Now that was interesting because I, I, I mean, I didn't really have any recollection of, of this episode. I, could, I couldn't even say that I'd seen it before. But as soon as they said eye contact, I thought, oh, suddenly they're introducing a new theory about this whole time travel thing. So it must be going to pay off in this episode. But it hasn't. No. So why introduce it in episode three? So as an idea, as the concept, is that we've got two people floating around and they're not interacting with each other. and But they are in a way, interacting with each other because, yes. you know, uh, in the first episode, they're going down to find the pe- the caterers who are locked up who they don't know are themselves, but but they are acting because of their own actions as, as, a, as a causality. And I'm just wondering if the idea here is that if you are looking at yourself in that moment, in a way you're communicating directly, that you are... That, that that the information of what you're seeing in that time is is like I'm stretching here. I'm stretching. That's the only excuse because wouldn't the same thing happen if they were on a behind a blind and one of them reached over, stuck their hand through a through a I'm going to call it a glory hole, but a, a hole in the wall. Uh, you know, tapped the other one on the hand and, and made in you know in Morse code or something. Now they're physically interacting and communicating. They don't know who they are, but. You know, there are... But there's nothing special about physical contact. There's nothing special about there's eye nothing contact. special about eye contact either. This in, is yeah, in reality, um, it, it, exactly. This is this is just a piece of law that is being dropped in as if. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you kind of go in episode three. Got a new writer coming in to write their episode. They have something in their payoff that they need to sow the seeds for, and this is it. We'll, we'll stick eye contact in there because they want to do something with it later in the episode. But it's not a new writer and nothing does happen with it in the episode. It's clearly going to be paid off later in the series. So if you are going to insist on introducing this nonsense piece of, of temporal law, why not do it in episode one when you're dumping all the rest of the kind of time travel nonsense knowledge? We're going to stretch the info dump out over several episodes so it doesn't bog down the exciting tale i i still can't help thinking that there has got to be some concept just just that i'm looking at me me is looking at me and because i'm looking at me my actions my current actions are now going to be as a result of me looking at myself i i'm i'm taking in that information and i'm going to do something and at that exact same moment the other me, past me, future me, it doesn't really matter which one, I guess it has to be past me, is also looking at me and making their decisions for the future based on the fact that, so you're in a, 
you're in that 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 loop at the the instantaneous level we the two of us are locked in changing our own futures at that moment i'm thinking that's what they're trying to get at but there are so many other ways that that could happen that you that wouldn't have to involve sight sight it it makes sight seem like it's magical right a special it's sense. the it's the blinovich limitation glass i mean i think you've i think you've done quite a, <laughs> yeah you've done quite a good job of articulating it in a way that is emotionally resonant but it still seems like nonsense to me yeah ultimately it's got to be wrong but it's like i could see how you could try as a writer to pull that one off and hope that they just all right go with it just go just go with it but i, I have a reason see this is my reason just, just don't think about it too hard. Don't think too hard. I want to, I want to, since you mentioned the idea of, of the eyes being laid in for something in the future. And again, I don't know. I, I don't know what's uh, coming up in the next few episodes. I really don't. But they laid a couple things down in this story that make me think they are prime candidates for future stories. Uh, we had previously talked about Holly's dad being caught in the loop of infinity, which just feels like unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Now we have Slade's dead wife. I assume that that woman is his dead wife. And we have that oddly phrased comment about his dad no longer being, he didn't say he was retired. He said he was uh, no longer a cop or, or something like that. And that I don't, I don't see him anymore, which sounds, oh, so suspiciously like some sort of, backstory that we have to explore like he's a cop gone bad or something but both of those just really uh screamed at me like okay we we got we got stuff for future episodes if they can figure out how to go back in time a lot more than 20 hours we've definitely got stuff for future episodes there i again i'm kind of i'm i'm wary of spoiling things that i do know about but i've also forgotten enough that i can okay join in the speculation and i'm not sure all of it does depend on time travel it's a bit like how in this episode when uh what's his name the incompetent one morris uh the the incompetent one the incompetent one who's not slayed i should say yeah morris um when when it turns out that that the suspect who morris is chasing is actually slayed and slayed disappeared i was expecting that to be to do with time travel stuff as in specifically he could just turn around and you know because he has the perfect alibi mm-hmm. he you know he's not he he couldn't be the suspect he could just he could join the chase say hey who are we chasing or whatever exactly that that kind of thing that was basically what i was expecting and actually we didn't get that we got instead i mean that that is a kind of well-worn trope in these things no instead we got the well-worn trope of jumping onto the moving train which you know i enjoyed but it didn't quite feel like it was utilizing the time travel stuff i felt like that when he jumped in front of the train and i i admit i didn't notice how long the train was but to my experience with trains not counting little light rail things but to my experience with trains you know uh, if you're at the engine of the train you got about 150 cars behind it so you get to the other side of the train. <laughs> That's quite American. You get to the other side of the train. No one is going to get to you. You're done. You've escaped. They are, they are not, they're not going to get there. You've got a long, long time 
So if that was only a couple cars or uh, the, the engine or, or something, I think, that, you know, yeah, well, then he might continue still. I running. think what you've got to bear in mind is that a train that's 150 cars long in the UK, you know, probably the engines on one coast and <laughs> the guards fans on the other coast. Yeah, yeah, we do. Have, we have long trains, and then when they get the ones where they stack them up too high, you've got a big country. Yeah, we do. So, yeah. Um, which is why we don't have commuter trains <laughs> cross country. But um, I, I thought, well, he he, got, he jumped in front of the train, he got away, and then he kept running and and doing stuff. And I'm like, how? What different different train configuration? That's all different. Kind. How can he afford that place? It, it's not my imagination, right? That looked like that was a very pricey. Yeah. Okay, but it, it again, it it's raised in the episode, and there's a kind of explanation that doesn't really explain it. We might find out. I don't know, you know. So it it's the kind of thing where it could come back in a future episode. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw two things out there. One, I figured out what happened in this episode long, long before long, long before they went back in time. I mean, I knew it was Sonia the minute the gunshots fired through the, the window. that was, She was so clearly, obviously not worried about getting hit that it's like, she is definitely behind this. And in the moment when James took Clifford, when James took, um, gosh, Linda, is it Linda, the sister's name? Linda, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. took her into the office. I paused the thing and I said, here it is. And I laid it out to my wife and I was exactly right, except I had not cottoned on that it was the insurance guy that was part of it. I knew, I was, I knew it was James and Sonia. I didn't, I just thought the insurance guy was a hired killer or something that they, that they brought in on the thing, but I had it right. So now I'm going to go forward and say, based on my previous comment, here's my prediction. Slade's father is a criminal Slade is the one who arrested him. This is Slade's dad's place. That's how he can afford it and how he could get possession of it. That's my... I suppose that fits with I'm, what's in the episode. I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not asking you to confirm that if you remember, but that that fits. And I hope he didn't kill his wife. Because <laughs> that would just be way I... too... That would just be way too tied up in a meatball... But okay, <laughs> we uh, yeah. Anyway, no, I, I I I I don't want to burst your bubble as a forecaster, but I didn't think this episode was terribly surprising. Oh no no I no no! Say, I didn't. I wasn't trying it, to say that I was brilliant. I'm just saying it was pretty obvious. No no no! <laughs> I I see. I agree that when Sonia dodged the, or when when she was being shot at by, as you say, the suspiciously showy assassin i i thought right that's faked as soon as the sister turned up i was like right yep the sister is going to get killed as soon as they talked about the dat tape i was like yep the shot the shots are on the dat yep all all i agree all of those things I, all of those things i'm like yep shots on the i i i'm not a... i did i did enjoy the the dat i thought wow that's cutting really edge cutting yeah edge technology <laughs> Ninety-seven. Yeah, yeah. So all, all of those things threw up red flags along the way. I, I completely. I wasn't a hundred percent sure about 
the the sister being the victim when they mentioned the resemblance i thought maybe the sister was going to be substituted in some way or that maybe you know there was something there so she could be in two places at once or something but um you know as soon as the the whole blue purple thing and he says oh come into the office i'm like oh yeah she's dead <laughs> she's because they'd already mentioned the dat so i already knew that the shots were fake and like yeah no it, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly brilliant piece of detective work it was just the writing was very obvious uh going into it and of course therefore the police were very incompetent um <laughs> yeah I, well i was going to say here here is the problem with with the episode and to be honest it's not how incompetent the police is that i had a particular problem with because i certainly you know what <laughs> i don't rate slade's skills no. i don't rate morris's skills um nicky who knows yeah may i i don't know yeah i mean he may be he may be clever but he's a bit green behind the ears the thing is that holly is obviously very very clever she's sharp as a tack and i have only the most basic workplace training in first aid and i was like why is she allowing this doctor air quotes there i know that doesn't come over on audio but why is she allowing this doctor to move someone who's just been shot under what circumstances do you move someone who has just been shot i i agree that that was bad i also agree that it was extremely bad that she got there first and did not notice any i don't know blood bullet Mm -hmm. holes Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. i i would think that that would be kind of an I, I I'd forgive that on the ground that she's, you know, she's focused on whether the patient is alive. Uh, well, yeah. What, what kind of state the patient is in, how much discomfort, you know, all of, all of that kind of thing. She doesn't get much of a chance to, to kind of look, but the, I mean, first of all, she just never should have allowed, she should have just insisted that she wasn't moved. But the fact that the doctor did move her should have set all sorts of alarm bells off. Why would the doctor do that? She should have been asking that question. And as soon as you ask that question, it kind of leads you to the inevitable conclusion. Wait, he's convenient, isn't he? Yeah. Well, and of course, James, the the other half of that equation is that Holly comes in and says, I have some medical training. And James immediately is like, well, let's wait for a real doctor. I'm a real doctor. Convenient. Runs up. Doctor says, let's move her in the office. Holly mm-hmm. says, should we really move him into the oct- office? And James says something to the effect of, I'll, I'll take my medical advice from a real doctor. Thank you. And overrules her on the spot. And she does look suitably WTF. But as you say, she doesn't do anything about it. But then, she, you know, she's not a cop. She's a science officer, not a cop. It's not her job to stop these people from doing something. No, but we've seen that she is smart. Is quite yeah. forceful. She's quite assertive. Well, she's she's smart enough to know it's wrong, and she obviously feels like her medical training is good enough that she can be a first responder in the absence of anyone actually qualified. But then, yeah, I would I would Staunch expect that her to call it as she sees it based on our knowledge of her so far so it felt a bit contrived that she suddenly became so diffident but more importantly 
the fact the fact that if if she had acquiesced to the move, the fact that the doctor had insisted on something that she thought was very, very strange is something I just thought she should have followed up. Yeah. Yeah. And if Sonia had been smart, she'd have worn a blood red dress. <laughs> yeah. When you're planning that thing out. It's like, eh, they aren't going to notice because <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm going to mention one other production note because I, I want to save one thing for last. And that production note is during the scene where they have gone back in time and it's at night and they go into the chapel and they see Slade as the incompetent mm-hmm. security guard. Let's be kind to him. Let's say that Slade knows that Slade's going this way and he's not going to look over there. So therefore he knows. So it's not incompetence. It's that he's using his foreknowledge to be in the right place so that they don't get seen. But either way, a very odd thing rose up to my consciousness while I was watching that episode. And that was the complete and absolute lack of incidental music. And I can't say that I notice much about the incidental mm. music in this show, except that I do not like it. Oh, I, I don't like the incidental music. I don't like the theme music. I just do not like this music. It's not that I hate it, but I just, it just doesn't feel right. But in that scene, the sounds of the room were and the sound of the room, the, the audio quality of it, everything was just so odd. And it was accentuated by the fact that there was no music in it. And I thought that's a, that's an odd choice because it, it is, it has risen up to my consciousness. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't think that normally would happen, you know, the absence, but for some reason, the absence was, was there. And I think, you know, maybe there should have been a little bit of a, a little tension tone there because they're sneaking around in a security guard and might catch them and but but no it, it's not there or if it was there it was sprinkled so lightly that i could hear the background noises over it so that was s- strange I, I didn't get a chance to go back and rewatch that but i have to admit i i wasn't it, that wasn't something i noticed i am going to stick my neck out and uh, disagree on the music I I like the music in this. It's not my favourite ever music, but it is by the composer of some of my favourite ever music. And Dudley, I mean, we've mentioned that this is Carnival Films and that Carnival Films also made Jeeves and Worcester. And Anne Dudley, who is the composer on this, also did all of the, all of the incidental uh, music, the theme tune to Jeeves and Worcester, and arranged all of the kind of bits that Hugh Laurie sings the but, you know the sort of mini the moocher and and other numbers and she is fantastic she she is recognized as being fantastic she won an oscar for the full monty ah uh, well i haven't seen the full monty but i mean the, the the one thing about this music that i would say is that it would fit better with what i envision as jeeves and worcester it feels wrong it feels like it should be for a period piece a hundred years back that's what is partially jarring about it. It's like, this, I feel like when an opening I, scene, we should see horses say... or, or very old cars driving down lanes. It, it has the fact, I did not know she did Jeeves and Bush, the fact that fits so perfectly with what the impression that it has given me is um, uh, telling, frankly. I, I, I don't think the full Monty is a non-contemporary story. Therefore, I assume that it doesn't sound, well, let's use Edwardian, um, but yeah. 
yeah, you are correct. It's not non-contemporary, if you want to put it that way. Um, I like and, my double, double, triple negatives there. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's kind of whimsical rather than being the music that you would associate with the kind of hard-hitting, gritty police drama. But then it's a kind of whimsical series. I'm not sure that it is as jarring, or I'm not sure I find it as jarring as as you do. But yeah, I will go back and listen to that that scene again with the what I perceive to be no sound. But I and, and even after that, I didn't notice that there was music in the rest of the episode. I just didn't notice that there wasn't music in the rest of the episode. It, it does not rise up to my doesn't normally rise up to my consciousness level uh, in this show. Some shows do. Some shows don't. I, I, it's not it's not Jeeves and Worcester level, but I mean. Jeeves and Worcester, I, I just, I, there is a, there was a CD released of the music from that show. It is one of my most worn CDs, and I have also scoured the internet for where people have sort of picked up other cues from the show because the music to that is so fantastic. So, I may be biased about it, and if I didn't know it was Anne Dudley, I might concede it's somewhat unremarkable. But I like it. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the one thing I wanted to bring up and I've been putting off is Turner's behavior in this is terrible. She does not come off well in this episode. And it's not just her not noticing the doctor or it because she is basically right throughout the course of the episode about everything except Slade sleeping with Sonia. And she just mm-hmm. does not come off well. It does not, there is, there is, you are jealous and you're not happy about this. And then you are cartoon jealous and you are not happy about this. And she is cartoon jealous in this episode. And as you said, in the first episode, I asked, why does she put up with him? And you said, because she fancies him. And it really wasn't in obvious to me in that it's obvious. In this one, it's very, very obvious. And Uh it's obviously he knows about it. And he is a big enough jerk. And by the way, my wife still hates him. Um, He is a big enough jerk that you'd think he would (laughs) use that against her. Because because he is a thorough jerk from end to end. I'm going to disagree with a few things. I I mean, I'm not going to say your wife is wrong because your wife is not wrong. (laughs) I'm not sure he is that big a jerk. And I kind of quite liked the way Holly behaves in this episode. Um, I've got to admit, I am just becoming more and more besotted again with uh, with Holly and uh, Chloe Annette in this. But it, I, I found all of that so far quite satisfying. It's treading a line where I can see it could easily, it could easily kind of veer into the irritating which I guess it already has done for you. This particular bit, and I and I will say that the way we leave the end of this episode, I I think we're veering very dangerously towards you don't do that with your not exactly partner at work, but it felt like they're going to go there very soon. Um, well, yeah, but they, if but they haven't already, very much not exactly partner. They're, they're in no sense partners there 
they're in different sections. They're doing completely different jobs. Ha. There's actually no reason why they should spend more than five minutes uh-huh. of work time. Let's you know in each other's company. It's the rest of it that is the contrivance. That is the. I mean, they both seem to have the same supervisor. Yeah, that doesn't make sense, though. I mean, why would the DCI be in charge of the forensics division? Science office. <laughs> is there a forensic? Is there a forensics division, or is there just Holly? I think it's just Holly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I expect if there was a second series, maybe they had a bit more budget, they could have afforded a science division. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm. I am. I'm worried for Holly. I, I'm I'm worried for Holly. She's falling for somebody who don't just don't. He's he's a bad person. I don't, he's a bad person. I know they're trying to reform him here, and I'm sure this bit with his dad and whatnot is going to be uh, his dead wife. It's this is all character development for Slade. Up to this point, his character has not been particularly. Uh, I I agree that she shouldn't. You know, he's there is nothing appealing about him except obviously he's quite good looking i guess if you like that kind of thing but that's that's partly what is quite sweet about her infatuation he's just so very obviously not worthy (laughs) not worth it yeah it's like you could do so much better ollie you could definitely do better um anyway i don't know that i have anything else on this episode i i have nothing else on this all right well in that case I am going to ask you what the next episode is. And I'm going to tell you what the next episode is as soon as I've checked what the next episode (laughs) is. The next episode is The Revenge of the Chronology Protection Hypothesis or Jeff Slade and the Revenge of the Chronology Protection (laughs) Hypothesis. Perfect. I'm looking forward to that one. I think think things are going to go... That was right. I had a prediction that things are going to go wrong in that episode. That sounds like a... hey. Things are going to go wrong with time travel in this episode. But okay. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash Fusion Patrol or patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at FusionPatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we look at two more episodes of Logan's Run. First up, Fear Factor, the episode where Rem and his pets visit an upscale sanitarium, thriving in a post-apocalyptic world. And we ask, who thought that the first order of re-establishing a post-apocalyptic world was to set up an insane asylum? And then we look at The Judas Goat, the episode featuring the amazing Spider-Man's Nicholas Hammond. And we ask... Just how many people know about the City of Dome's Council of Old White Guys? Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol. Also, don't forget that between now and April 7th, 2023, over at soundcloud.com fusionpatrol we're running our special series on Star Trek 
Strange New Worlds. Check it out.